0: well today is the marriage sermon today is the marriage sermon hey if you're married go ahead and do me a favor raise your hand raise your hand if you're married okay now you're sitting there with your wife don't put your hand down so fast kind of look a little proud for that you're married you're like slow oh oh, oh. you married okay hold your hand up hold your hand if you're here with your spouse okay do me a favor go ahead and hold their hand Okay. Oh, look at you guys. Y'all are so cute. Welcome to church. You made the best decision you can for your marriage. You came to church today. And here's the reason that I want you to hold their hand is because it's harder for them to hit you when you're holding their hand. Amen. Today is the marriage sermon. We're continuing our study through the book of Proverbs called Wisdom for Life. And if you're new here at Redemption, our favorite way for us to preach the Bible is for us to pick a book. We're going to study the book. We're going to learn the book and we're gonna get everything out of one single book that we can and right now we are in the book of Proverbs and let me tell you why we love studying this the Bible this way so much is because it's about transformation not just about information that this book is more than just information this book is about transformation not only does it tell us who God is but it tells us how we are to live our lives for God and that has an important aspect when it comes to your marriage because when it comes Comes to the subject of marriage, you need more than just information. You need transformation. When it comes to your marriage, you need more than just good advice. You need good news. There's a lot of places you can go and you can get information. Okay, but there's only one place you can go to experience life change and transformation, and that comes from the Word of God. There's a lot of places you can go and you can get advice. Some of it's good advice. Some of it's not so good advice. But there's only one place you can go when when it comes to your marriage for you to get good news, and that's to go to the good book. And so today we're going to go to the book that God wrote, and we're going to see what God says when it comes to wisdom for marriage. And last week I went to the Christian bookstore, and as I was walking around the store, I realized there was an entire section in the bookstore dedicated to marriage and family. And I thought, this is great. Lots of people wanting to get help, wanting to get wisdom when it comes to the subject of marriage and family. And I noticed that there was a a lot of different people. It's probably one of the most popular sections in the Christian bookstore. And there was people from all different ages and some were single and some were married and there was you know, young people and old people and everybody in between and there was couples and singles and I was like, that's so great. Look at all these people looking to get help and hope and wisdom for marriage. This is great. And then I went to my house and I looked in my library and I got about 20 different books over the subject of marriage and I thought, it is such a blessing that there's so many pastors and teachers and authors and theologians who are writing books trying to help people about. About marriage. And then it dawned on me. Okay, the reason people write books is because they're trying to fix a problem. The reason there's so many different marriage books is because there's many marriages that are actually experiencing a problem. People don't write books to tell you everything you already know. Okay. People aren't writing a book like, Hey, you're awesome. Keep killing it. Thank you for the $20. Like that's not why people write books. People write books because there's a problem and they're trying to help you. The proliferation of marriage books and sermons and resources only show that there is a problem in marriages in America and there are problems and people like you, you're looking for hope when it comes to it. I mean, just think about it. When you go to, say, the grocery store and you go to the pharmacy section and you see the big aisle of medication, is medication a good thing or is it a bad thing? Okay, depends if you're sick or not because if you're sick, then it's a good thing. And that's the same way when sermons about marriage, you come here today and you're excited because there's probably some things in your marriage that you're not exactly excited about. So what I want to do today is I want to bless you. I want to help you. I want to pray for you. I want to believe God's best for your marriage. And if that's what we're going to do, we don't need just good advice. We need good news. We don't need just information, we need transformation. We need something more than just a sermon, but I'm going to do my best to try to be able to help you. And so let's turn to God's word and see what God's word has to say about marriage. Here's what Proverbs says in Proverbs 18:22. Solomon is the author of the book of Proverbs. He's the wisest man who's ever lived. Let's see what he has to say about marriage. He says this in Proverbs 18:22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. All the men said, Amen. If you did not say that, that's why you're holding her hand, because she's about to hit you. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is a good thing. In the beginning, one of the first things God did was he, he organized or, or officiated a wedding. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the beginning and unfolding of all of humanity. God made everything in the world that we see. He made the plants and the stars and the trees and the animals, the sun, the moon, the mountain, the valleys. God made everything, including the platypus. And he said, it is good. And then God made man and said, wow, he needs some work. It's not good. And so then he made a helper fit for him. Her name was Eve. And then he brought Eve to Adam And then God officiated the very first wedding. The first thing God did was he he performed a wedding ceremony and he brought two people together in a marriage. That's why it's good. God stepped back and said, ah, yes, that is good. It's not good for man to be alone. So now he's married. That's a good thing. And so we see from the very beginning, marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. But today, marriage has kind of fallen on bad times. Okay, marriage in America, it's very confusing, it's convoluted, and it's not going well. Today, 50% of marriages will end in divorce. 41% of first marriages will end divorce. I read one article that said there's 100 divorces every single hour in America. Marriage is a good thing, but it's fallen on hard times. And because of this, many young people, they've just given up on marriage altogether. Many of you young people, you grew up in loveless, lifeless homes where your parents, they argued and they fought and they disagreed. There was no love. There was no fire in the romance. There was no sex to be had. And you saw that and you said, no, thank you. I don't want anything to do with it. So you push marriage off. Maybe you just don't want to get married at all because you think, nope, that's not for me. I don't want to go there. And so young people, are delaying marriage more and more every single year the average age for women to get married now is 27 the average age for men to get married is in their 30s in the 1960s 95 percent of men were married before the age of 30 today only 56 percent of men are married before the age of 30 marriage is a good thing but it is not going well And many people would say this, they would say that Christian marriages are no different than non-Christian marriages. How many of you ever heard that? How many ever heard that there is just as much divorce in the church as outside of the church? How many of you have heard there's just as much adultery inside the church as there is outside of the church? How many of you have heard that there's just as much infidelity and every Christian is just as miserable as everyone else when it comes to their marriage? Have you ever heard that? Okay, it's not true. Okay, that's a myth, that's a lie that's been spread. It is absolutely, unequivocally, it is statistically just not true, but this myth has been spread, and it's a powerful myth. I've even heard it, and I've even preached this before, that there is just as much divorce in the church as outside the church, and this week, as I was listening and studying and doing research, it's just not true. But here's the reason why it's so devastating. It's because it just takes, it takes non-Christians, and it says, why would I go to the church when it comes to wisdom for marriage? If you're not a Christian, you think, why would I go to the church? Why would I read the Bible? Why would I talk to someone that I know? to be able to help me or pray for me because your marriages look no different than mine, that your relationships look no different than mine. You have nothing that you can give me or offer me that would make my life look any different. And so it creates hostility from non-Christians towards Christians, and then it discourages Christians from inviting your friends to church. Because you think, well, why would I invite them to church? Because you say, hey, would you like to go to church with me? And they're like, no, because you're just as miserable as the rest of us. Why would I go there and just be miserable with you? And you're like, okay, yeah, you're right. We're all hypocrites and we're all terrible. I'm gonna go home and- Cry myself to sleep, and so you think, "Oh, well, why would I do that?" And so it just creates hostility from non Christians, and it discourages Christians from inviting people to church. And it's this great, big, powerful myth. And guess what? It's not even true. Here's how they came up with it. So researchers they they, they would ask these questions like this: "Are you a Christian?" And then people would say. Yes, that's exactly what I am. And then they would say, okay, well, now that you've professed that you're a Christian, okay, let's go ahead and let's ask some questions around the subject of marriage. Now, in America, most people would say they are Christian, okay, and because, you know, we were raised in the church, we went to Iwanas, we had praying grandparents, we went to youth group, they bopped us on the head, we were once saved, always saved, we're good. So I don't have to really practice my faith anymore because I already said the prayer. And so many people would say, oh, I'm a Christian check that box, and then all of a sudden, here's all the questions about marriage, and then they go and answer the questions, and then they realize Christians are no different than non-Christians. Okay, now let me ask you this question. Is it possible for someone to say there's something that they're not? What do you think? Is that possible? Is it possible for someone to claim to be something and then not actually be what they claim that they were? Do you think that's possible? Have you ever met someone who said they were a Christian, and you're like, really? Wow. Okay, let, let me just give you, let me give you an example. Okay, for me, okay, I am the power forward for the Golden State Warriors. You say, Byron, no, you're not. Yes, I am. You say, no, you're not. Yes, I am. I am the power forward for the Golden State Warriors NBA Finals, baby. We're going to do this. In, like, we, we got this. You're like, no, Byron, you're, you're not. Who are you to judge me? I'm, I'm, it's 2019, I can be whoever I want to be, and I want to be a power forward for the Golden State Warriors. I am six foot seven in my heart, and I can dunk from the free throw line in my heart. You can't judge me, this is just who I am. You say, no, no, it's not, okay, why? Because some people can profess something they don't actually practice. Some people can claim to be something and then not actually be what they claim to be. You can profess a faith that you do not practice, and then that just throws everything off basis. Let me just, let me just give you another one, right? How many of you have a gym membership? You got a gym membership? Okay, now how many of you actually go to the gym? Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. You can profess, oh, I got a gym membership, or you can practice and actually go to the gym. Some people profess a faith that they don't practice. That's why the numbers are off. And so there's a researcher, his name was Bradford Wilcox, and he, he writes a book called Soft Patriarchs, New Men, and he shares some really groundbreaking research. And I'm going to post this in the Connect page, and you know, I'll give the resources there. If you're not in the Connect page, go online, get involved in the Connect page. We'll share all of this in the notes. But Bradford Wilcox, he's the leading professor over the subject of relationship and religion. And he wanted to figure out are Christian marriages the same, or is there a difference between Christian and non Christian marriages? And so he, he did the research and he did the studies, and here's what he discovered their difference. That people who profess but don't practice their marriages look very different than those who actually put their faith in practice. That Christian marriages and non Christian marriage are actually, are actually very different. And so here, here's what his research says. I want to read to you some of the things that he, he discovered. Okay, first thing is this he, he discovered this. He discovered that Christians. Conservative evangelical married men demonstrate the lowest rates of domestic violence out of any other group surveyed, okay? Christian men are the safest men in America. Evangelical, Bible-believing, spirit-filled men are the lowest rates of domestic violence than any other group, but on the flip side, those who profess a Christian faith but do not attend church on a regular basis demonstrated the highest, Men who profess a faith they don't practice are the most dangerous men in America. But men who practice their faith are the safest, most loving, most kind men in America. See, what Wilcox does is he changes the question. Whenever they ask the question, they say, well, what do you believe? And then they just profess a faith they don't practice. Wilcox, he changes the whole dynamic because he he flips it around and he asks practice questions instead of professing questions. He says, he says, do you believe that Jesus is the only way for you to go to heaven? And they would say, yes. He asks five. Do you believe Jesus is the only way? Do you believe the Bible is the infallible written word of God? Do you believe, do you pray daily? Do you read your Bible daily? And are you a member of a local church? Okay, that changes the dynamic for the answers and it separates those who profess from those who practice their faith. And he discovered that men who practice their faith have the best marriages than anyone else in the nation. And here's more research. 70% of churchgoers who attend every week report to be extremely happy in their marriage compared to 59 who rarely attend. Okay, you want to be happy in your marriage? Okay, best thing you can do, go to church. And The next one he says, the group with the highest marital satisfaction was women who husbands attend church. All the ladies said, amen. amen. Get your man to church. Couples that attend church together are 35% less likely to separate than couples who do not. The best way for you to safeguard your marriage is for you to become a member of a church. The best way for you to prevent from separation, divorce, the best way for you to build a long, lasting, loving, happily marriage is for you to go to Next Steps, get in a community group, and for you to join a serve team. Become a member of a church, and you're the least likely to separate than any other. Other group. Christian men are more active and expressive towards their children. How many people think that kids need better dads? Okay. The best place for you to learn how to be a dad is within the local church. Christian men are better dads. He says this. That Christian men are more positive towards their marriages. Christian men are more emotionally engaged in their marriages. How many of you ladies would love for your man to be a little bit more emotionally engaged? Would you like that? Would you like that? How many of you just like him to be engaged at all? You're like, please, just turn off the TV. Anybody? Okay, then here's the answer. Bring him to church, right? Drag him to church, and he'll be more emotionally engaged. Men? Okay, welcome, welcome to church. 14 years ago, a girl dragged me to church, and I'm still here. That's how I got saved. Christian men are more positive in their marriages. Wives uh, of church attending Christian men are the most likely to report marital happiness. Ladies, you like to be happy? Yay, pro-happiness. Anybody pro-happiness? Okay, then you're also pro-church. Church attendance promotes empathy among men towards women and children, not just towards their wives and their children, but towards all women and children. Christian men are more empathetic because when you're in church, you understand that God is a father, we're his children, that women are our sisters, and we have a responsibility for the next generation. And so Christian men are more empathetic towards women and children. And then men who attend church are more affectionate towards their own children. Men who attend church yell at their children less than those who do do not. And here's the icing on the cake. If that doesn't get you excited, well, this one's going to do it. And if this doesn't do it, your wood's wet. This is the pierce de resistance. Couples who attend church. Y'all ready? I don't think you're ready for this. I don't think you're ready. Are y'all ready for this? Okay, you better get ready, because it's coming. Couples who attend church more than once a week have more frequent sex than any other group surveyed, and according to the groundbreaking research done by the University of Chicago in their thesis, the social organization of sexuality, they discovered that women married to men who attend church at least once a week have more orgasms than any other group surveyed. Christian marriages are the best marriages. The research is in. Christian marriages are the best marriages. They look different. They are distinct. Christian marriages are healthier. They're stronger. They're more satisfied. They last longer and they have better sex than any other couple. Christian marriages, they are just different. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to believe what Proverbs says, that he who has a wife has a good thing. And they obtain the favor from the Lord. And so I'm believing for good marriages. I'm believing for great marriages. I'm believing for God to do something amazing in your life. Because men, you got a good thing. Ladies, you got a good thing. And I want you to obtain the favor that comes from the Lord. So I'm going to give you six keys from the book of Proverbs, things that you can start doing right now to where you can have a good marriage. Six keys to a good marriage from the book of Proverbs. The first thing that Proverbs is going to tell us is this. The more you worship, the less you worry. Proverbs 14:26. In the fear of the Lord there is a strong confidence. The major refrain throughout the entire book of Proverbs is this, the fear of the Lord. 17 times in Proverbs he says, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Because everything begins right here. It starts with one thing, that is the fear of the Lord. If you want a healthy, happy, good marriage, you start here. It starts with the fear of the Lord. Now some people would say, well, what does the fear of the Lord mean? Isn't that strange that we're told to fear Fear God. Okay, here's what fear of the Lord means. It doesn't mean that you're to be afraid or running away or cowering or worrying. It's actually the opposite, it's not worry, it's worship. The fear of the Lord is worship that you begin to see just who God is, just how great God is, just how amazing and big and sovereign and strong and wonderful God is. And when you see who God is, then that gives you confidence for the rest of your life. It is a, it is a respect. It is a reverence. It is an awe. It is an, a worship. It is a awareness of God's presence. And when you have an awareness of God's presence in your marriage, that's where confidence comes from. God's presence builds Confidence. If you want confidence for your marriage, you need God's presence in your marriage. If you want to have a strong marriage, you need to have God as the confidence of that marriage, that it starts with God, it ends with God, it's centered on God, that he comes first, he is the most important thing, it begins with the fear of the Lord. And the more you worship, the less you have to worry. How many of you would love to have confidence in your marriage? That you would love for it to be strong, you would love for it to last, you would love to go 30 40 50 years legacies left behind you how many of you would like to have confidence when it comes to your marriage okay then you need the presence of God in your marriage that it begins right here the fear of the Lord the more you worship the less you worry and you're thinking Byron you keep talking about this every single week it's the fear of the Lord it's worship it's worry why do you keep talking about worship and worry you know why because you're so worried Because every week, all week long, you're just so worried all of the time. You're like, I'm worried about my marriage. I'm worried about my finances. I'm worried about my children. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my community group. I'm worried about my life. I'm worried about my relationships. I'm so worried. And now you're worried about being worried and you're worried that you're worrying too much. Stop worrying. (laughs) Start worshiping. The fear of the Lord, it brings a confidence. And you can have a confidence in your marriage if it's built on this, the Lord. So let me give you three things that's gonna invite worship into your marriage. The first thing you can do is this, that you can pray together. Pray every single day. Pray together. Men, pray over your wives. You are the spiritual leader of your home. You set the temperature of that house. Your prayers set the thermometer of that home, and you get to determine the way that your wife and your children flourish and grow. Men, pray over your wives every single day. And then you would say this, but I don't know how to pray. I can tell you this, that your wife would rather you pray simple prayers than for you not to pray for her at all. Your wife would rather see you stumble and stutter over your words than for you to not pray for her at all. You need to pray over your wife. It doesn't have to be perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect prayer. There's only men who pray and men who do not pray. You need to be praying, and it doesn't have to be in King James English. It doesn't have to be a systematic theology. You're not trying to impress anyone, but you do want to pray for your wife. Men, pray for your wives every single day. Ladies, pray for your husbands every single day. Wake up in the morning, pray for them. On the way to work, be praying for them. At lunch, be praying for them. Before you go to bed, be praying for them. Every single day, pray together. The second thing I will tell you is to read your Bibles together. This word is God's word. It's good, it's true, and many marriages have been built on this. A Bible that's beat up belongs to a marriage that is not. If you read your Bibles together, I believe that God will continue to bless it. And I'm not saying me and Ashley are perfect because it's a struggle for us every single week. But here's one thing that we do is we take the family Bible, we got a nice little ESV Bible, and we literally put it on the dining room table because we're so busy throughout the day. We get up in the morning. I leave before she does, and then Esther's up, and then I come home for lunch, and Esther's down for a nap, and then there's Mother's Day out, and then there's deacon meetings, and then we're just running around everywhere, and it's very hard for us to get on the same page. But every night when we sit down for family dinner, guess what's looking us in the face? It's the Bible. We have no excuse to read it because it's always right there in the center of our home. Am I saying we're perfect? No, but we do put the Bible in its place, and it belongs in our hearts, in our hands, and it belongs in our homes. Amen. The next thing you can do is this. Go to church together. But before I say this, let me say it. Don't try to do everything too much. Some of you, you're like, okay, we're going to pray together, and we're going to read our Bibles together. And then you go home, and you tell your wife, we're going to pray, and we're going to read, and you cast this big vision, and then you don't do it. Okay, you're like two weeks in, and it all falls apart. You're like, this year is going to be the year we're going to speak in tongues and read the whole Bible. And then two weeks later, you're like, uh, eh, that didn't go very well. Right? Don't try to bite off more than you can chew. Here's what you need to do instead. Okay, just start somewhere. So if you can't pray for 10 minutes, pray for nine. If you can't read a chapter, just read a verse. Just start somewhere. Do something. Don't do nothing. Number three, go to church together. I already shared with you the research. The best thing you will ever do for your marriage is for you to go to a church. For you to get committed, connected into a gospel-centered, spirit-filled, authentic community, so that way you can experience life change through Jesus. The best thing for you to do in your marriage is for you to commit to a local church. Don't just go to church when you feel like it. Don't just go once a month. Don't just go once every presidential election, but as often as possible for you, you and your family, y'all need to be in church. It's the single best way for you to safeguard your marriage. Don't just go when you want to, go because God has called you. Don't just go because you have to, go because you need to. You need a church in your marriage. It's the best thing that you can do. One of my favorite things that I get to see is a husband and wife worshiping together. It's the best thing in the world. I love it when husbands and wives, they come into church and they raise their hands. The guy has his hand lifted high. He's got his arm around his wife. The Bible's open. They got a smile on their face. They come forward. They take holy communion. And I just love to see that. You know why? Because the fear of the Lord builds confidence for your marriage. The more you worship, the less you have to worry. That's where wisdom's found in the fear of the Lord. If you want confidence, it starts with the fear of the Lord. The, The second thing is this. He says a key to a good marriage is that sex should be fun and frequent. You're like, how do we go from worship to sex? If you do it right, that's how it goes. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely doe, a graceful deer, let her breasts fill you at all times. With delight, be intoxicated always with her love. Last week, I told all the singles, here's the things that you are not supposed to do. Do you remember that big, long list? I gave the big, long list. I'm not repeating it. Okay, if you're interested, you can go back and listen to the podcast, but I gave the big, long list of all the things you cannot do. You remember that list? Okay, married people. That's the list of everything you can do, so get get to it. I said do not cross the line until it's the time. Okay, married folk, hey, it's the time. Cross that line. You need to cross that line. You need to cross that line as much and as often as you want. You can cross that line. You can cross it all night long. Here's what you need to do. When you go home, here's what you do. You say, baby, we are remodeling our bedroom. I'm taking the bed, picking it up, and we're putting it over here across the line. Okay, we're crossing the line, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Why? Because sex should be fun and frequent. Here's what, here's what Solomon says. He says, let your fountain be blessed. This is Hebrew poetry. What do you think fountain means? I'll give you a minute. What do you think he means by let your fountain be blessed? Think about it. <laughs> oh, exactly. Let your fountain be blessed. The, the wife of your youth, a lovely doe, a graceful deer, let her breasts satisfy you always, and may you be intoxicated with her love. Here's what he's saying. The more your fountain is blessed, the more fulfilled your marriage will be. That sex should be both fun and Sex is a gift that God gives. And it's a great gift, and it's a gift that he wants us to use in marriage and with a husband and a wife because it's a blessing, it's a gift to build strong, healthy marriages. It should be fun and frequent, and here's why sex is so great. It's because sex, it brings you together. That it is the most intimate, personal, close connection that you can have with another person. And it's both spiritual and it's also physiological. Did you know that there is an endorphin that's released in your brain whenever you have sex? It's called oxytocin, and it binds to the the opioid receptors in the human body, very similar to that of heroin. It is the most pleasurable thing that a person can do, and it literally addicts you to a person. That's why he says that you would be intoxicated with her love. So we're bound together both spiritually. That's what Jesus means when he says a man will leave his husband or his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, there's a spiritual connection but there's also a physiological connection that you literally become addicted to a person through your sexual relationship. This is why sex outside of a marriage is so dangerous and why sex inside of a marriage is so important and beautiful because it literally mingles your souls together. It is the most connected that you can be with another person. And now because many of us, we grew up in a pornified culture that doesn't understand what true love or sex actually looks like. Many of us, we see sex as a God. That you see sex as a God, that you you, you see hookup, shackup, breakup culture, promiscuity, adultery, pornography. You view sex as a God. And so you just kind of worship it by using women or men as sexual objects. Others of you, you grew up in very strict religious environments to where you were told that sex is nasty. It's dirty. It's wrong. It's gross. So wait until you're married and give it to the person you love. And you're like, that sounds terrible too. And some of you, you were raised that sex is God. And then others of you were told sex is gross, but the truth is sex is really a gift. So because many people have a misunderstanding or a brokenness around sexuality, let me give you five reasons God gave sex as a, as a gift. The first reason is this, sex is for pleasure. Okay, God made sex feel good for a reason. Okay, he wants you to enjoy it. Right? It's not sin for you to enjoy sex. If you don't enjoy sex, that actually might be a sin because you're not giving God the credit that he gave. Okay? You should enjoy sex. It is to be pleasurable. It doesn't have to be boring or stellar or vanilla. You can have a little fun and you can do it frequently. Sex is for pleasure. Number two, sex is for procreation. Children are a blessing from God and it's one of the best results of sex for that of procreation, and here's, here's what I think, is that God knew that you know, having babies was gonna be so difficult, God knew that making babies needed to be as fun as possible, amen? Procreation, number three, sex is for oneness. Whenever you are fighting, when you're disagreeing, when you're arguing with your spouse, okay, whenever you have sex, it brings you together as one. It makes you one, that you're you're, you're getting closer with one another and and, and you're able to experience that together. So if you're not on the same team, if you're not on the same page, get into the same sheets and then you'll become one. The next one is sex is for protection. That fun and frequent sex protects you from sin. The apostle Paul, he he says this. He says that do not deprive one another sexually or Satan's going to come between you. Do not tell the other person no for unnecessary reasons or else Satan is going to come between you and he's going to wreak havoc in that marriage. Why? Because sex prevents you from temptation that it prevents you from sexual temptation, lust, pornography, adultery, that it lets you say, like, I only have eyes for you. I'm going to spend my time with you. The more frequent and fun your sex is, the more you safeguard one another, prevent them from sexual temptation. And then lastly, number five, sex is for knowledge. In the Bible, oftentimes it'll say this, that Adam knew Eve or that Sarah knew Abraham. What that means is this, that sex is for knowledge, that it's not only for pleasure or procreation, but But sex is also for knowledge. It's the most intimate thing you can share with another person. You're the most honest, you're the most vulnerable. You're stripped down in front of the other person. You're allowing them into the most sensitive places of who you are. Not only your body, but also into your soul. Sex is for is for knowledge. And ladies, I'm gonna lean over the plate and I'm gonna take one for the team. I wish you understood this. Is that sex is not for pleasure, for men. Godly men, mostly sex is for knowledge. There is nowhere in this world for a man to be vulnerable. There is nowhere in this world for a man to truly be honest, for him to truly be open without fear of rejection, except for in the arms of his wife. For your husband, sex is not for pleasure for him. Sex is for knowledge. And when you degrade him, turn him down, or play defense all of the time, It's one of the worst things you can do to him because it just just devalues him. Because for your husband, sex is not just for pleasure. Sex is actually for knowledge. And so I want you to understand that, that when 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 he's pursuing after you, it's because he wants to know you. He wants to be close to you. He needs protection. And pleasure is good too. Sex should be fun. Sex should be frequent because it's a gift that God gave. So cross the line. Okay, that's your homework tonight. Cross that line. Number three, compliment more than you complain. A soft answer turns away wrath, and a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pours out folly. A good marriage is kind of like a checking account. Okay, you have a bank account. You got the little debit card. Okay, think about a good marriage like that. Okay, every time you make a complaint, guess what? That's a Swipe of the card. Okay, every time you complain to your spouse, all you're doing is swiping the card. Okay, and then you're going around and you're just like swipe. You're on a shopping spree, just swiping with that card, complaining, 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 complaining. Every time you make a complaint, that's a swipe. So you say, why didn't you take out the trash? Swipe. Okay, why didn't you do the dishes? Swipe. Why didn't you come home on time? Swipe. Why do your feet stink? Swipe. Those are all things I get in trouble for every single week. All that is is a swipe of the card. Why didn't you change the litter box? Swipe. Why didn't you change the diaper? Swipe. Okay, that's just a swipe of the card. And guess what happens? If all you do is swipe the card, what's going to happen? Okay, you're going to overdraft. Okay, anyone ever overdraft? Not a good day. That's a bad day. That's why so many couples get in fights. It's because you're overdrafting the relationship that you've been swiping that card because you're complaining all of the time. Every time you complain, that's a swipe. But every compliment, ooh, that's a deposit then. Okay, many relationships struggle because you take more than you give, that you need to make investments and deposits into that relationship, and you can do that. You can do that by making compliments. He says a soft answer. That's a compliment. It turns away wrath. So you need to be complimenting. Okay, every compliment, that's like $10. You're like, babe, you look amazing, $10. $10. right, babe, you are so great, that's $10. Babe, you're such a wonderful mom, that's $20. Babe, you're my ox, that's $50. (laughs) You say, oh, sweetie, like, I did the dishes, that's $20. You're like, I changed the diaper, that's $100. You changed the diaper without her asking, that's $500, Amen. amen? Okay, you're just putting money in that bank. Okay, here's Guys, here's what you need to do. You need to be compliment millionaires. You should be taking that girl to the bank every single day of your marriage. You're just like, babe, you're amazing. You're awesome. You're so great. You smell nice. Your macaroni is delicious. Does that come from a box? I never even knew it. It's just so good. You should just be complimenting, 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 complimenting that woman. Guys, ladies, you need to compliment your husband. Encourage him. Build him up. Up. Tell him, thank you for working so hard. Thank you for providing for our family. Thank you for being there for us. Thank you for reading the Bible. Thank you for being my husband. No, your back hair doesn't bother me. Now go take a shower. You stink. I love you. Just keep making compliments and deposits into that relationship so when you do have to swipe your card, you don't overdraft. Compliment more than you complain. The next thing he tells us is, that we can move from being selfish to a servant when pride comes then comes disgrace but with the humble there is wisdom proverbs 11 2 i was talking with the woman in our church whenever we were getting ready for this series and i said i'm going to be preaching on wisdom for marriage and i love this lady she's you know she's great so i'm not throwing her under the bus here but i was like i'm preaching on wisdom for marriage what would you like to be able to hear when it comes to wisdom for marriage She said you know what Pastor, I would really love for you to tell me how I get my husband to do what I tell him to do. I'm like, wow, he's probably thinking the same thing about you. You're like, how can I get him to t- do what I say? He's thinking the same thing. He's wondering why you don't do what he says either. And so I said, you, so you want me to take the word of God and you want me to teach you through the Bible how to manipulate your husband? And she was like, well, now that you say it like that, Yes, that sounds very nice. How do I get him to do what I tell him to do? And here's, here's the reason why you think that is because you're selfish. Okay, we're all selfish. Here he says, pride comes, then disgrace. If your marriage is built on you, it will end with you. If your marriage is built on pride, then it will end with disgrace. Here's what pride says it's all about me. What about me? How are you going to be there for me? How are you going to serve me? How are you going to please me? How are you going to bless me? What are you going to do for me, 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 me? Okay, that is pride. Okay, and that is incense. That is selfishness. Most marriages struggle because both partners tend to be very selfish. The key to a good marriage is humility. That Wisdom for marriage comes from humility. Pride leads to disgrace, but wisdom brings humility. Humility is being a servant. I have never seen two humble people start a war. Have you ever seen that? Two humble people, right? You're like, hey, what are you doing over there? I'm just serving. Oh, that sounds nice. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Can I serve you? No, no, can I serve you? No, can I serve you? No, can I serve you? Can I help you? Can I bless you? Can I pray for you? I have never seen two humble people start a fight. Okay, it normally comes from, comes from pride. Okay, we need to be servants and we don't need to be selfish. Here's how you do it. You stop thinking, stop thinking me, and start thinking we. That you stop thinking me and you start thinking we because now you are married, it's not about you anymore. Hey, the best way for you to have a good marriage is for you to move from being selfish to being a servant to stop thinking me to start thinking we. These are the healthiest marriages. You have two people. If you have a selfish person and a selfish person, that's a bad marriage because you're gonna be fighting conflict all the time. If you have a selfish person and a servant, guess what? That is a toxic relationship because one person's gonna be taking, the other person's gonna be giving, that's gonna be abusive, it's gonna be toxic, it's gonna be dangerous because you have a servant and then you have somebody who's just stealing from them. But if you want a good, strong, healthy marriage, it's two servants. That the husband would serve the wife, that the wife would serve the husband, that you would bless, they would bless, you would love, they would love, you would serve, they would serve. That's what a healthy, strong, beautiful marriage is, that you're not thinking me, you're thinking we, that you are being a servant instead of being selfish. The next one we see is this, number five, that you would learn to fight fair. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs ten eleven. every marriage has fights. Okay. Every marriage has fights. When I meet couples and they're like, we never fight. Okay. You know why you never fight? Because you don't ever talk. Or maybe your life has been so separated that you have nothing in common anymore. And so there's no reason to fight because you don't spend any time together. If you're going to be married and you're going to have a good marriage, you need to learn how to fight and you need to learn how to fight fair. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. You will get in a fight. So you need to learn how to fight fair. He says the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. One of the things that distinguishes Christian marriages is this, is that we fight for our spouse not against our spouse. That we fight for our marriages, we're not just fighting against our spouse. Proverbs says this, that you can fight in a way that brings violence. That when you're bringing violence against the other person, when you're trying to hurt them, when you're trying to harm them, you're no longer fighting with them, you're fighting against them, and that's Satan's job, not yours. Ladies, you need to understand this. You are at an unfair advantage when it comes to fighting with your husband. Because no matter what he does, he's still going to lose. Okay? No matter what it is. If he wins the fight, guess what? He's still sleeping on the couch. He loses. Okay? And if he loses the fight, guess who's sleeping on the couch? He is. He still loses. Here's the bottom line. Is when you fight for your marriage, no one wins. You both win or Satan wins. When you're fighting in your marriage, either you both win or Satan wins. That's the only way, because Satan comes to bring violence, that he wants to bring death, he wants to bring destruction, he wants to bring chaos, disorder, he wants to bring sin and shame and separation, he wants to bring violence into your marriage, but Jesus comes to bring victory. When we fight for our spouse, that's Jesus' goodness and grace, that's Jesus' victory in our marriage, and so that's what we need to do. Either you both win or Satan wins. The first attack was against a marriage. In Genesis 3, Satan doesn't even show up until the marriage already took place. That there was a wedding, and then there was a war. Satan's gonna show up to destroy your marriage because he knows if he can destroy your marriage, then there's generations of Christ followers, churches being planted, pastors and missionaries being sent that he doesn't have to worry about because he killed him with you. If he can get your marriage, then he can continue to destroy the rest of the kingdom of God. When you fight, you need to think of the future, that you're fighting for your spouse, and you both win or Satan wins. Don't do Satan's job for him. You're building the marriage. You're bringing victory instead of violence. So let me give you five ways for you to be able to learn to fight fair. Never say never or always. You never do this. You always do that. Never do this. You always do that. Never use these two words, always or never. You will never always win if you never always say always never. Okay, the only time you should ever say these two words is if I will never leave you and I will always love you. Because when you use these words, you're no longer fighting, the, per- the, the, you're no longer fighting the, the problem, you're now fighting that person. When you say always and never. Number two, never speak harshly. Don't raise your hand, don't raise your voice at the other person. Keep your cool, keep your distance, watch your tone. A lot of fights happen, not because of what gets said, but the way that it is said. So you need to watch your tone, never speak harshly. Number three, never use your children. Children are a blessing, they're not a bargaining chip. Don't use your children against one another. Don't try to get your children to take your side versus their side. Don't bring your kids into the fight. Just take a moment. Take it to another room. You know, take it down a notch. Wait till the kids go to bed. Have the conversation. Never use your children. Number four, never make accusations against one another. In the book of Revelation, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's doing a good job. He doesn't need your help. Don't make accusations against the other person. You married them for a reason, believe the best in them. They're not trying to hurt you, so don't hurt them. Don't make accusations. And number five, never go to bed angry. How many of you, whenever you go to bed, after a fight, you kind of do that little, like, foot thing, right? Like, your backs are together, but then one person's trying to stick the foot off to the side. Maybe we can touch feet, and they know that I'm, a sor- I'm sorry. You ever do that? You ever do that? Okay, we're, are we the only ones? Okay, we need marriage counseling then, apparently. <laughs> then you can come and preach this sermon. Okay, so here's the, here's the deal. Okay, that's not an apology. Okay, I just, I just helped save tons of marriages right there. Okay, that is not an apology. Never let the sun go down on your anger. Do not go to bed angry. The the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter four, he, he actually quotes that. He says, if you go to bed angry, you allow Satan a foothold in your life. Unresolved conflict opens the door for the demonic in your marriage. Because you allow bitterness and unforgiveness to come into your marriage and to come in between you and your spouse and it will literally tear you apart. It is a cancer that kills marriages. Okay, Never go to bed angry. Sit down, have the conversation, have the face-to-face time. Make sure that you're working it out before you go to bed. Me and Ashley, we got in a big fight this week, huge. On our way to a deacon meeting, me and Ashley, we got in a fight. Before we got out of the car, I said, babe, we're not doing good. I'm fixing to go preach a sermon over marriage, and I'm gonna be a total hypocrite. We need to figure this out today. And so I'm going to go to this deacon meeting, you be praying for me, and then I'm going to be praying for you. We're going to take a big, long list, we're going to sit down, and we're going to have this conversation, and we're going to fight, and we're going to fight fair. And after Esther went to bed, I got home from work, we had dinner, we sat down on the couch, and for 30 minutes, we just worked it out. We opened up in prayer, I prayed over her, she told me everything I was doing wrong, I didn't argue with her, I said, yes ma'am, and then I asked her to forgive me, and then I told her everything that she was doing, and then she cried and we prayed and we read the Bible together and we fought fair because our marriage is too important. There is too much on the line than for us to go to bed angry at one another and for it to bring devastation and separation in our relationship, it's too important to wait. Either you both win or Satan wins. Your marriage is important. The next one we see is this. Where you repent regularly and you forgive freely. He who covers sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. this is the most important thing that you will ever do in your marriage. It's the one thing that differentiates Christian marriages from non-Christian marriages, is we repent and we forgive. Christian marriages, we know what to do with sin, that we don't cover our sin, but we confess our sin. Many marriages struggle because people don't know what to do with their sin. There's two big problems in every single marriage, that every marriage has these two things. And if you got these two things in your marriage, the likelihood of you killing one another increases 100%. Do you know what the only two problems in a marriage is? The husband and the wife. Okay, Other than that, your marriage is perfect. The husband and wife, that's the problem. You know why? Because you're a sinner. Because they are a sinner. And when you get two sinners in the house together, guess what? That's twice as much sin. Okay, one sin plus one sin doesn't equal no sin. It equals two sin. And when you get two sinners living in a house together, there will be sin in that house. And so you better know how to deal with the sin. See, most people, they think, well, they sinned against me, so I'm going to sin against them. They sinned against me, so I'm gonna kill the marriage, I'm gonna kill the memories, I'm gonna kill the mood, I'm gonna kill the relationship, I'm gonna give up, I'm gonna give in, and I'm just gonna walk away because they've sinned against me. Yes, they might have sinned against you, but the bitterness that you're harboring is sinning against them, you're both guilty. So the question is, what do we do with the sin? How do we deal with the sin? Two things, repent and forgive. This is the distinguishing mark of Christianity, that Christianity begins with repentance. Here's what repentance means, that you turn from your sin and then you trust in Jesus, that you would see your sin, you would be broken over your sin and then you would turn from your sin and then you would turn to Jesus. That's what repentance is. And then forgiveness is what Jesus does to cover that sin. We need to repent and we need to forgive. That's how a Christian marriage lasts for a lifetime, is if we practice repentance and we continually forgive one another. That this is what changes marriages, repentance and forgiveness. Your marriage needs Jesus. I mean, just think about it. Jesus leaves heaven, he enters into the world, Jesus comes so that way he can die the death for sin. Jesus lived the perfect life because you are not perfect. Your spouse is not perfect. That Jesus dies the painful death in your place for your marriage. Jesus had no sin because our marriages have so much sin. And on that cross, Jesus died the death for sin. So sin does not have to put your marriage to death. In a Christian marriage, we don't tolerate sin. We don't celebrate sin. We kill sin. Either you be killing sin or sin will be killing your marriage. We know what to do with sin. We kill it. And if your marriage is already dead, the good news for you is Jesus conquered the grave. He resurrected. He's still alive. And he can resurrect your dead marriage back to a new life. He can do it. You don't have to have a boring, stale, cold, lifeless, heartless, soulless, sexless, loveless marriage. You can have a new marriage. You can have a great marriage. You can have a good marriage. And here's the key. You don't need information. You need transformation. You don't need just good advice. You need good news. You don't need just another sermon. I love you. I'm trying to do the best that I can, but one sermon will not fix you. You need something better than a sermon. You need a savior. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is the wisdom for your marriage. Jesus alone is the wisdom for your marriage. It's not information. He's transformation. It's not just good advice. It's good news. It's not just one sermon, but it's a savior in the middle of your marriage every single day for the rest of your life. This is why marriage is so important is that marriage is a built-in sanctification process, making you more and more like Jesus every single day for the rest of your life. Nothing will show you just how selfish and sinful you really are than when you live with someone else. And nothing will show you the grace and the beauty and the hope and the memory and the mercy that comes from the Lord than being married to another person. This is why Proverbs says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing because marriage is to point you to Jesus. And when you get Jesus in your marriage, guess what you have? The favor of the Lord. God wants to bless your marriage. He wants to pour out his favor on your marriage. He wants to strengthen your marriage. He wants to to see your marriages just flourish. He wants you to have a good marriage. How many of you... You're like, how do I do that? What does that even look like for me? How many of you think about marriage and you're like, I have no clue what I'm doing? Do you want to know what the secret for a good marriage is? You ask people who've been married 50 years, what's the secret to a good marriage? You ask an older guy, what's the secret to a good marriage? Do you wanna know what the secret to a good marriage is? Do you wanna know how to have a healthy, holy, happy marriage that lasts 30, 40, 50 years in the future where there's generations with your last name still loving Jesus? Do you wanna know what the secret to a good marriage is? One word, Jesus. The mystery of marriage is really about Jesus himself. This is why Christian marriages are different because for us it's about Jesus. Here's what the apostle Paul says. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. How many of you are like, yes, Paul, it's profound. Right? Marriage is a mystery. Anybody would agree? I've been married for 10 years, and I still don't know what I'm doing. It is a mystery. Marriage is a mystery, and it's a profound mystery, and here's what it's about. Jesus Christ and his church. So let the husband love the wife and let the wife respect the husband. Marriage is different for Christians because for us, it's about Jesus. That the husband loves the wife the same way that Jesus loves the church. The way that Jesus lays down his life for the church is the way that a husband is to die for his wife that you are just giving and blessing and loving and serving and equipping and helping and pouring out your love on your wife every single day because that's the love we get from Jesus. And then for the church to serve, to help, to further the mission, to be able to love Jesus, that's the wife's job that just as the church submits and serves Jesus the same way that a wife is to flourish and grow within the home. That's why Christian marriages are different because we know that marriage is a mystery, but the secret to marriage is Jesus. And so for your marriage, you need Jesus. Some of you come here today and and your marriage is on the rocks. Your marriage is on shambles. That you come here today and you're barely holding on for by a thread. And you say, Pastor Byron, I need something. You better crush this sermon. Truth is, you don't need a sermon. You need a savior. I can do my best, but he's way better. You don't need a sermon, you need a savior. His name is Jesus. And some of you come here today and your marriage is doing pretty good. Can it do better? Absolutely. Okay, one sermon will not fix the problem. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. It's daily following, loving, serving, praying, blessing, forgiving, repenting, following after Jesus with your spouse. You don't need a sermon. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is the wisdom for our marriages. So I wanna give you some homework for you to do. I'm gonna give you quotes with a couple of questions. I'm gonna ask them very quick. And for those of you who are married, I want you to go home tonight and I want you to sit down on the couch and I want you to have these conversations with your spouse. Be honest, be open, be vulnerable. And if you're gonna get in a fight, use the rules for fighting. But here's five questions. I want you to seriously go home and I want you to ask these questions. And I believe that your marriage will grow because of it. First question is this, how is our worship? Are we praying together? Are we reading our Bibles together? Can I pray for you more? Do we need to go to next steps? Become a member of a church? That's the best thing you can do for your marriage is to become a member of a church. How is your worship? Number two, how is your sex life? Have the honest conversation. Sit down, have that conversation. Is there things we need to do? Is there things we need to change? Do we need to move the bed across the line? What do you like me to do? What don't you like me to do? Let's have this conversation so that way we can improve our sex life. Number three, do I, I compliment you enough? And I'll give you the secret, you don't. Okay, you don't compliment enough. Anybody's like, stop complimenting me. Like, you cannot encourage someone too much. Okay, you, you can never compliment your spouse too much, so do I compliment each other enough? You need to have that conversation. The flip side of that conversation is, do I complain too much? Have that conversation. The next one is, how can I serve you better? Am I selfish? Is there some things that I need to change? How can I serve you better? Do we fight fair? Are we fighting for our marriage? Or are we fighting against one another? And then lastly, is there anything we need to repent of? Is there anything that we need to forgive? Take your marriage to Jesus. Take your wife to Jesus. Take your husband to Jesus. Take your family to Jesus. The best thing you will ever do for your marriage is for you to get wisdom And wisdom is found in Jesus. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. All the guys said? And you have the favor from the Lord. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus.